We'll be reading from Psalms chapter 15, verses 1 through 5. Lord, who may dwell in your secret te- sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? The one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from their heart, whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbor and casts no slur on others, who despises a vile person but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind, who lends money to the poor without interest, who does not accept a bribe against the innocent, who does these things will never be shaken. This is God's word. You may be seated. You may have noticed uh, when you came up to the building this morning, a lot of big trucks out there. That's because we're doing the, uh, the blood drive. We do this two to maybe sometimes three times a year. And the reason we do it is we want to bless people that, uh, that find themselves in some kind of a crisis, in particular a health crisis or some kind of a tragic event. And it's one of the ways that uh, a church like ours can bless people all over the San Antonio metropolitan area. And uh, usually on a day like this, we'll give anywhere from 30 to 35, uh, I started to say gallons of blood, but I don't think that's, <laughs> that, that doesn't sound right. Uh, pints of blood or units of blood, whatever a unit is. And, and that blesses a lot of folk. And uh, people in our own church family have been the recipients of blood over the years and, and uh, have been blessed by that. And so if you have the opportunity today, uh, and in fact, uh, I, I don't ever want to send anybody out of our sermon time, but if you want to give some blood, this might be a good time to uh, get up and go over to the fellowship hall and they will uh, take your statistics, vital signs and all of that to make sure that you're uh, uh, a good and healthy person to give some blood and you can do that right now. And we're grateful to Douglas for all of his, his prep work and contact work with the South Texas Blood Bank and the way that they, uh, they do their, their business here on the two to three Sundays we have them. Uh, as you know, we're in the Psalms. We're going to be looking at Psalm 15 today. Uh, Dallas Willard, a uh, great writer on the spiritual life. It's a quote from him that we've been using every week to remind ourselves of the importance of the Psalms. If you want to understand the nature of God, the nature of life, and the nature of the faith, you read the Psalms. And today we're going to look at Psalm 15. There's an outline in your uh, bulletin that you can use as we go through this study this morning. And let's begin with a word of prayer. Our Father, our desire is to be always and forever in your presence. But sometimes that's not our highest desire. The promises of pleasure can seduce us. The status of a claim entices us. The busyness of the day oftentimes assails us. The instant gratifications distract us. But we say in this moment you are our one desire and we need your help to make it more so. And so we are grateful for this psalm. And we come as your children to this ancient psalm of David and we need good ears and keen eyes to discern it. Give us these things for this time of study. And this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Tragic thing happened in June of this year, just this last month. There was a 64-year-old man who was kayaking out on the Spring River in northern Arkansas near Saddle Falls. He was out in the middle of that river when a sinkhole 
appeared in the middle of the river. It created a whirlpool that dragged him down to his death. Sinkholes are the result of subterranean limestone being worn away, eroded away, where it causes a part of the earth to just collapse. There was another famous one that happened in 2013 in Sefner, Florida, where a man was getting ready to go to sleep at night, went into his bedroom, was getting into bed when a sinkhole uh, just opened up the earth right there under his bedroom. The house was sucked down into the sinkhole. He lost his life, and the body was never found. Uh, Sinkholes in the river are extremely, extremely rare. Extremely rare. There's a surprise when they happened. But guess what? They're a surprise when they happen on firm ground as well. And sometimes we come to these points in life where it feels like the earth is being dragged out from underneath us. I mean, have you ever experienced a time when your life felt like a sinkhole had just appeared underneath your life or the life of your family? It feels like life itself is, is attempting to pull the ground right out from under your feet. And if not out from under your feet, at least to shake you up a bit. One of the first teachings we learn as a kid, in fact, we learn it as a song, is found in the last verses of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. And Jesus has been talking to them about what it means to be a disciple of His. If the kingdom of God is where you want to live and the kingdom of God is going to live inside of you, this is how you live. And He talks about the blessedness that comes to life and how you pray, and how you give alms, and how you fast, and what it is you seek in this life, and even about the, the, the judgments that we make about other people. And at the end of those three chapters, he says this in Matthew chapter 7. He says, if anyone hears these words and puts them into practice, he is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. You know the song. One of the first songs I learned as a, as a little kid in Wichita Falls wise man built his house on the rock. The foolish man built his house on sand. And it doesn't matter until rains come. And what happens when the rains come? The rains come down and what comes up? Floods. And if your house is built on sand, there's a great crash. If your house is built on the rock, it stands firm. It's unshakable. This is one of the promises of Psalm 15 for those who take the words of God seriously. Very last verse of Psalm 15 says, Whoever does these things will never be shaken. Let's say those words together with our outside voices. Whoever does these things will never be shaken. Let's do it one more time. Whoever does these things will never be shaken. As we look at the Psalms, one of the things that we've noticed is that the Psalms offer to us the possibility of a blessed and happy life. Psalm 1, blessed is the man. But another promise that the psalm makes to us, and why the psalms are important to us, is that they also hold out to us the possibility of an unshakable life. Your life can stand firm in the midst of waves and earthquakes and high winds and the ground opening up beneath you. God the Father gives us these psalms in order to prepare us for the path that we find ourselves as His children walking on a daily basis at times. And that's one of, the, one of the simple lessons about being a parent, right? When it comes to preparing your children for life, you're preparing your child for the path, not the path 
for the child. If you do it that way, when you're gone, that child is not going to have the poise, not going to have the buoyancy. It's not going to be, you know, it's going to drop into the fetal position when those tough times come into life. The Psalms take these eternal truths and they mix them and converge them with human emotions in order to develop an inner strength and the proper foundation for life. And so in this psalm, we're going to see two things. We're going to see the desire above all desires. And that desire above all desires leads to a life beyond others. Let's look at that first point. The desire above all desires. David starts the psalm by saying, it's a prayer. He says, Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? David, I believe, wrote this psalm before there was a temple and before Jerusalem had become the locus of God's presence among the people of Israel. That sacred tent is the tabernacle where Israel met God. And their history was that they would camp around this tabernacle as they made their way to the promised land. And inside of this tabernacle, there would be a priest who would enter into it for a short period of time for sacrificial purposes. But the people were not allowed to go into the tent. They lived around it and they traveled with it, but they weren't inside it. At the end of the verse, he makes a reference to a holy mountain. I believe this is Sinai and not Mount Zion. The holy mountain is Sinai where Israel experienced the presence of God after their exodus, after they had been redeemed from their slavery, and when they were being formed into a nation for 9 to 12 months. But it was Moses who was only able to go up and down that mountain. In Exodus 19, what are the people told? Don't touch it. Not even a beast. To touch the mountain where God was, was, was to die. But here's David, who is described in two places, one in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament. And one of the descriptions is one of the high points of a way a human being can be thought of or described by God. He is a man after God's own what? Heart. And one day his heart and his mind are so saturated with the presence of God and with the beauty of God and the reality of God and the wonder of God that a desire explodes in his heart and in his soul, in the very center of his being. And out of that desire, he begins to pray to God. The very first word of the psalm is, Lord, he's talking to God. He says, I don't want to dwell near your presence in the tabernacle. I want to be invited inside. I want to live in it with you. I, I don't want to live in your vicinity at the foot of a holy mountain, as great as that is, but to live with you on your holy mountain. In other words, David is beginning to pray to God uh, this great ambition. He says, my highest ambition and my greatest desire is to never spend one single minute outside of the palpable and tangible and visible experience of your presence. He's only doing what others have done before and after him. Remember Moses? Moses has this experience of God that is unique and singular to human beings, from the burning bush to meeting with God on Mount Sinai. But it's not enough. 
And towards the end of Exodus, what does he ask of God? He he has seen enough God more than anybody else, but it's not enough. And he says, I want you to show me your kavod, glory. I want to see the weightiness of the center of your being in all of its glory. And then you'll remember over there in the New Testament, Jesus goes up onto this mountain and he's transfigured. And Peter and James and John see him in his glory. And and we're told that Peter was out of his mind. I don't think he was. What is it that Peter wants to do when he sees Jesus transfigured? Why don't we build a house and we can stay up here forever? This is where I want to live. Many of you have read the book Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, written in 1678. Bunyan, living in England, he was a Puritan at a time when there was a lot of religious controversy and upheaval in England. The, the, the Church of England did not have a whole lot of sympathy for Puritans. Bunyan was a great and profound Puritan. And he preached a sermon, not being licensed by the state to preach, and he was thrown into prison for 12 years for preaching, for preaching. One sermon, 12 years before gaining his release. And as he writes about his time in prison and how he survived in in that that wretched place, he wrote that the way that he was able to survive survive was that he had made living in the presence of God his chief desire and, and thusly had learned to live upon God who is invisible. To live upon God who is invisible. To live upon God, to live in God's presence is where our souls find finds its true center of all of life. Jesus, the brother of, or or James, the brother of Jesus, at the very beginning of the letter we call James says, a a person can become double-minded and unstable in all they do. That word double-minded is really the word double-souled. Or in other words, a person can live sort of half over here and half over there, and their soul is split. That person doesn't know what to do. It's right down the middle. They are double-souled or they are, are, are split-souled. A little of the evidence that our soul sometimes becomes split like that is how we use our words. How would, if you're on a first date with a girl or with a guy, how would you describe yourself? Do you tell the truth about yourself on the first date? The decision to tell the truth depends on whether or not you're going to get in trouble or not sometimes. That constant feeling of sometimes being vulnerable to people or circumstances. We don't have that solid center. You know, I want to give you a 28-day challenge. A 28-day challenge. First thing you pray every morning, last thing you pray before you fall asleep are the, verse, are the words of verse 1. Pray this for the next 28 days, first thing in the morning, last thing at night. Father, more than anything else, I want to dwell in your presence. And if that's not my highest desire, then help me make it my highest desire in all of life. I want to be in your presence. And, and do you know what happens when you make God your, high, your heart's highest desire? 
When God becomes everything that you want to experience, then you begin to change. You begin to live differently. Think about it this way if you're married. The way that I live in this world is different because I have Ellen in my heart. The way that I live with Ellen is different because I have Ellen in my heart. The way that I live with you is different because I have Ellen in my heart. And that's what we mean by the life beyond all others. It's what God does to a human when they desire nothing but God. And David begins to give us six indicators that we are beginning to to find ourselves more deeply embedded in the presence of God. There are six, and to that 28-day challenge of praying at the end and the beginning, you can add these six. The first is, you begin to see that your life, your way of life reflects God's presence. He says in verse 2, the one whose walk is blameless, the way of life is blameless, and what he does, and what he does is, is righteous. It's a question so simple, it's nearly em- embarrassing and insulting to ask it, but here it goes. Why does a banana tree grow bananas? The first answer could be something like this. The banana plant organism with its particular molecular structure given sufficient sunshine, water, and soil will produce what is known botanically as a berry, but we call it a banana, and it's delicious and nutritious. Answer number two is simpler, but much more profound. A banana tree produces bananas because it obeys God. God created it to produce bananas, and the tree obeys. And it becomes what God designed it to be. Remember Psalm 19 and how creation declares and proclaims the glory of God. When you see a banana tree full of bananas, it's actually singing. A great and glorious God made these bananas. When you see these beautiful bananas, it sings. Behind it is a beautiful banana-making God. It obeys God. As human beings, when we align our life with our greatest desire in anything, we change. When we obey that desire, we change. A young man wanting to play in the NFL does not live on a couch eating Cheetos. Unless he's a lineman, I guess. A young woman wanting to medal in the Olympic track and field events centers all of her life on the activities that reflect and feed that desire. Same thing happens in the world of academia. I had a professor that said, if you want to be a Bible scholar and a serious one, you have to get up early. You change the way you live. Think about it in music. Everybody looks at a great guitarist. Everybody looks at a great drummer. Everybody looks at a great pianist. They, didn't, they weren't born that way. It was dedicating all the desires, uh, energy of their desire and physical activities to that end. But then there's a second one that he talks about. Not only does your way reflect God's presence, but your words are truthful, not hurtful. You know, we get this. There are things that we don't say because of the presence of someone special that we might be in. I mean, oh, I'm, I've been doing this uh, preaching thing for about 40 years, nearly 40 years. And, and it still gets me every time I walk into a room and everybody's language turns to the King Jimmy. Oh, Brother Mark, how art thou? 
and thine house? How art thou great? See, you know, it, it, you know, we, it turns into this, this King James language. In verses 2 and 3 of Psalm 15, who speaks the truth from their heart? There's an integrity there. It's not a facade, it's who they are. Their tongue utters no slander. Our words should never be used in a way that misrepresents reality. Number three says, you love your neighbor because you love God. In verse three he says, who does no wrong to a neighbor and casts no slur on others. One of the ways you know that you're growing in your understanding of what it means to love God and to desire to be in His, His presence is that it's so beautiful and wonderful and captivating and compelling that you want everyone else to experience it. And so to love God is to love your neighbor. Number four, you desire community with like-minded people. As you, as you desire to be in God's presence, and not just on the fringe, but to be right there, to be invited on the inside, you find that you want to be around people who are like-minded. In verse 4 he says, It despises a vile person, but honors those who fear the Lord. It means finding yourself attracted to people who desire God and who can help you in your desire for God to be everything and all things in, all th in, 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 every, in every way. And I think you guys, after 17 years, know me. I love, I love everybody. I love everybody. I'm friends with all men. All, I, I'm friends. I, I, love, I love dogs. I even love cats. I'm maturing as I get older. I'm friends with all men. I care for all people, but I place limits on the influence that people who care nothing for God have on my life. And the older I get, you know what I, I crave? I crave conversations with like-minded people that can always elevate the conversation to something about God. My community are those who have been transformed by the gospel. And then number five, you live a life of integrity. In verse 4, who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind. Your whole life, now and in the future, is based on the trustworthiness of God's Word. I mean, can you imagine getting to Judgment Day, standing in line, standing in line, standing in line, Judgment. And you come to God, and God pulls up your name and says, Oh yeah, I changed my mind about some of the things that I promised to you about getting into heaven. It's not on grace. It's based on Wednesday night attendance. That would be an awful thing. Our word is to reflect the trustworthiness of the word of God. When you speak, can people stand on your word in a way that reflects how you stand on the Word of God to give you your identity and to give you your confidence and to give you this, this hope in life that changes everything and makes you unshakable. And then the final thing he says, you're a, a giver and not a taker. In verse 5, who lends money to the poor without interest, who does not accept a bribe against the innocent. The verb that describes God more than any other verb in the Bible is, is give. I have this theory that I think that God laughs out loud every time someone refers to themselves as self-made. Self-made man. 
I think God laughs when he hears that. You have no say on where you are born on this planet and the opportunities and the possibilities that are extended to you because of where you just happen to be born. And on top of that, you have no say in the DNA that your parents have passed on to you, whether it's athletic or intellectual or a high emotion like you, whatever it might be. You have no say. Are you a hard worker? Yes. Are you a risk taker? Uh, maybe. But self-made? You understand that everything that you are and everything that you have and what you're becoming has been given to you. This passage that, uh, that Adrian referenced earlier, I am who I am, like Popeye. I am what I am because God decided that he was not going to take his wrath out on me. He was not going to be a taker, but he was going to give me his son, the life of his son the blood of His Son to pay for my crimes against Him. And when we, as, as Shane West talked about in our Bible class this morning, we get our mind around the fact that at great cost to Himself, more than anyone in this room can imagine, God reconciled Himself to us, giving us forgiveness and the opportunity to repent in order to come into His presence. And as we have said over and over and over through the years, it wasn't that, that Christ was compelled to stay on the cross. It wasn't the nails that kept Him on the cross. Certainly one of those Roman sh soldiers. 10,000 angels ready to come over the, leap over the top of heaven and come down to earth to, to bring their prince, God the Son, back to God the Father. But he gave his life in order to give his love to us. It was his love. And we've talked a lot about that passage out of Hebrews 12. It says, you know, he, he endured the shame of the cross because of the joy set before him. Every time I think about this verse, it just undoes me. He left perfection and harmony and partnership and joy and blessedness. All of that in heaven for joy that was... What joy was not there? What joy was missing that would compel him to stay on the cross and, 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 and to be beaten into the dust the way that he was? You know what that joy was? Us. The one thing he didn't have in heaven. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. The joy was us. His love for us is what kept him on that cross. And I, I'm here to say that when that gets into your heart, it just melts you. It revolutionizes your whole life. And you want to pray with David, God, I don't want to be in your vicinity. I want to be in your place. I don't want to be outside the tabernacle. I don't want to camp outside of it. I want to be invited in. 
I want to be inside your sacred tent. I want to be on your holy mountain. And I'm grateful, I'm grateful that the door has been opened to me through Jesus. We're going to sing a song right now, a song of invitation. Some of our shepherds are going to be down here at the front in any way that we might be able to minister to you, to talk to you about the importance of of the gospel and how the gospel changes everything, to talk to you about maybe something that you're struggling with, uh, maybe even with the desire to be in God's presence, to help you to pray that prayer for yourself, whatever it might be. We want you to come down to the front and talk to these shepherds as we stand and praise God together. Glory, hallelujah.